0: Age is twenty seven. That's what most Americans, when they're polled, think the perfect age is. I have no idea why that is. But when they ask of any age, I'll tell you one thing I'm sure it ain't fifty seven. I can tell you that. <laughs> every day, today, as every day for the next twelve years, eight to ten thousand boomers will turn sixty five on every day. And what someone said me one of the great advantages of finally making a sixty five, he said, first of all, kidnappers are not interested in you. Second of all, if you're taking hostage, you're released first. That's really true. <laughs> Things you buy probably won't wear out. That's true. You can eat supper at 4.30. I already do that. That's great. You can live without romance, but not without your glasses. At 65, you get into heated arguments about pension plans. At 65, you quit holding your stomach in no matter who walks into the room. Isn't that room. 65, your secrets are safe with your friends because even they can't remember them. And I wasn't going to share it because it was inappropriate. They said at 65, you finally learn not to take a sleeping pill and a laxative the same night. But I'm not going to share that. When every stage and age of life that God is teaching, as we come to the final look at this fascinating study of the book of Amos, That even when the nation of Israel is about to go extinct forever, forever, after Assyrian and the ten northern tribes, you'll never hear of them again. That even then, God is pouring out his warning and his calling for them to return. We have seen already in any of you that are visiting that Amos is... Teaching the great truths that are so applicable to any troubled time, but particularly Los Angeles in 2012. I mean, this is a, so paralyzed, parallels what's going on, it is spooky. If you remember this, uh, we have a map here of uh, Israel, and if you don't know where Israel is because you were on another planet, that, uh, of course, in the, the east, in Assyria, this is the year 750 BC, one of the super kingdoms is raising up, and it's thumping Syria, Syria and Damascus. And Syria is always warring against the northern tribes. So now Israel has a pass. It's the times of the greatest advance politically since King David. It's the time of the greatest economic prosperity since Solomon. They literally liquidate their military budget, because there's no need for it, and give it to the top wealthy. You know the whole 1% thing going on? It was going on in the year 750 B.C., and at this time, God comes to them and tells them that He is the God of all the nations, that He is sovereign of all the nations, and He holds them accountable. In this next map, remember that we saw that Amos, who is a shepherd and a farmer, he comes from down by Jerusalem to Koa, and he goes up north to Israel. And he says, for three sins and for four of Damascus, for three sins and for four of Ammon, for three sins and for four against Gaza. And he, God holds them all accountable. And what's interesting Not accountable for what they believe, because they believe wacky stuff. And not even accountable for how they treat Israel. But accountable for how they treat each other. And God says, I hold you accountable, and I am the God of all nations, whether they acknowledge me or not. And I think before your very eyes, this Arab Spring, there's another hand going on underneath there. And so the Lord calls, and he comes to them. And he says he holds them. And what he tells them is that Yahweh is not only the God of all history, but all these other nations are significant to me. We saw last week. I brought you up from Egypt, but I not dream the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kerr, that I care about all the nations. But then finally, after this blistering word of warning, this message of hope which you just read. Why you are sitting here, or whether you're watching online, I know right now that you woke up this morning just like me after you put your socks on and you basically had a question behind everything. How can I make today the happiest I can? And why am I here? Amos says that you were made in the image of God, the imago day between the lines. And three things that we see in this beautiful last chapter about why you live and I live. That you were made for a person and a place. The person is the Lord. Until you get that right, life is always going to be whacked out. And you are not made for earth. Your home is not where you're from. Your home is where you're going. And you'll always be a stranger and a sojourner until you understand that. Second of all, that you were made to connect because you're in God's image and create like he is. You're little creators. To connect, you were made for relationship. That's why we're doing these small groups at Lent and signing up together. You were made for that. And to create, bringing your dreams into existence. Because God wired you finally more to receive than achieve. The divine humility of God. He loves to stoop down in his benevolence and have you and me get ideas and bring them into existence with his help. By his power, even as a little child learning to write, remember parents used to take their hand and help them spell out the letters and we think we're so tough and God comes by his hand. and helps us write our our dreams. But Amos tells us that's where we find our security. Augustine... Of course, his father was a pagan Roman. His mother was a Christian in the year 400. And as Rome was collapsing around him, the eternal city had been sacked by the vandals and the Visigoths. It was falling apart. He lived a party life, getting high, sleeping around, had a child out of wedlock. He was a professor for Rome. And then he finds Christ. And he made a great statement that sometimes that TJ and the worship team will lead us in. Our hearts are restless until we rest in God that you and I, no matter what goes on in life, until we find that resting place in all of the chapters of our lives, there's always this restlessness. But when we d- do, God releases it incredibly. we got your Bible. Let's turn back and take a look at this final chapter of this remarkable book. Amos 9, page 750 there. The people are playing a game with them. Remember we saw that he says your worship isn't really what you think it's about. We all cut corners. I had someone call a few years ago and said, Would you, Mark, do a funeral for our dog? And I said, No. I mean, we're sorry you lost this beloved pet, but we don't do funerals for dogs. And he said, Well, what do I do with this $5,000 honorarium? I said, You didn't tell me it was a Presbyterian dog. That's so what I did. That. So. But the people are doing that right here in this. Verse 9. For lo, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes a sieve, and no pebble shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, evil will not overtake or meet us. God says, I am going to shake you like a sieve. And he is. Assyria is coming to town. Assyria has their agenda, but God's going to trump their agenda, and he's going to hold them accountable and take them out. But God says, I'll use them because I'll use whoever I want because I'm a sovereign, free God. And I am sifting. And the sifting is to get the righteous from the unrighteous. And the righteous, not a pebble will ever hit the ground. Those people who love me, and they're about ready to go into a horrible exile, never to return, God says, I will be with you the whole time. But the rest of you, he says, who say evil will never befall us, tuck and roll. Because this is the best day you're ever going to have from here on out. It gets bad to worse. And I'm calling you and telling you to come to me. And God fulfills this in the next 35 years when the horror of Assyria comes on to the scene. Look at verse 11. On that day. That's an eschatological marker. You said that's what I thought, Mark. <laughs> on that day. Eschaton is the fancy theological word meaning the last things protology is first things, not proctology, protology. And eschatology means what is God going to do at the end? You have an eschatology. Everybody in the city does. How's it all going to end? And what God has is called the deed word revelation. Sometimes God speaks and then he acts. Sometimes God acts and explains himself later. On that day is an eschaton statement. On the future day. Sometimes God will act and say, this was that which was spoken of by the prophets. And in your life, sometimes the Lord gives you a word. Do you know what I mean? Maybe not audibly, but he's doing something and you're waiting and waiting and then it happens. And other times events will hit your life and you'll go, what was that? And God later on through friends or others, you'll look back, you go, ah, and do the Brewer salute. I finally understand and see what the Lord is doing. God doesn't change in that style. He does the same as he always has. On that day I will rise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old in order that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who were called by my name, says the Lord who does this. Now you know who knows this book? James. Got your Bible. Turn with me over to the book of Acts into the 15th chapter. This is the first Jerusalem council Every form of government, by the way, whether congregational or Episcopalian or Presbyterian can, or even the hierarchical like Catholic or other, can base the, itself on the 15th chapter of Acts. Now, there are four James in the New Testament. is why it gets confusing. Jesus has two disciples, James of Alphaeus and the other James. His half-brother, James, is also somebody there. And there's another James. This is James who Paul says the Lord's brother. Paul says that Jesus on Easter morning, which we're going to celebrate in about seven or eight weeks, appeared to Peter and to James. And we don't have a record of that, but he knows that he did that. Paul goes and has a time alone with James, the brother of Jesus. Now they're half brothers. They got the same mom, they got different dads. And James will become the head of the church. Now Paul has been out preaching and the Gentiles, these pig-eating Romans, are speaking in tongues before they're circumcised. I mean, the Holy Spirit has fallen on them and they haven't even gone to the new members class. What do we do about that? Look at verse 12. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon, it's a Hebraic there, has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. Disagrees with the words of the prophets that this is written. After this I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen. From its ruins I will rebuild it and I will set it up. So that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord who has been making these things known from long ago. So, what James and them is doing is, oh my goodness. They looked at and they went and they looked out and God is rebuilding the tent of David. The tabernacle. If you go camping with a family, you get one of these huge Coleman tents, you know, the weigh about six tons that you put up and they always fall down in the wind. What God is saying is, the tent has fallen and I'm building it and putting, and I'm going to restore Israel. But it's not just Israel. It's us. And so the early church, they're going, Oy vey. Well, I don't know if they said that or not. But that God is bringing, in even these Gentiles, that's how he's rebuilding it. See what he quotes? Amos. Now, justice And holiness and love are all attributes of God. And one of the theological axioms is you can't divide his attributes. You can't say here's his holiness, but here he's being loving and kind. And and here he's being just. He is one. The Lord our God is one. And justice is something that God brings about. Our symbol of justice is what? She is blindfolded, holding the scales. Remember where that came from? Originally in the Egyptian, Ma'at and later Isis would be, she was the god of justice. And then later on, the Romans will use Justician, who we use, Justia, Justice. But it wasn't until the 16th century in Bern, Switzerland, that a gentleman uh, by the name of Hans Kang put a blindfold. And why is, why is Justice blindfolded? Because she's not partial. It's just evidence. That is not what God is saying. He is saying, I am not blindfolded, O Israel. This is me in your face. This is my heart, and I am doing I'm not doing some karma. I'm not doing some ethical physics out there that just happened. I am personally involved in your life. And I am doing this because I am trying to call you back to me. This in this covenanting God, And Hosea, which we read last week, we didn't read on it, God says, Oh, Ephraim, Ephraim, my soul is torn, my heart, that I must do this to you. That he has to send them into exile. I Like I've told you before, uh, how translators take a word and how old English. The King James Bible, you know, one of the greatest works of literature in the history of the planet. But, you know, old Elizabethan English, you know how they translate that? My heart is moved. It says, Oh, Ephraim, Ephraim, my bowels are moved when I think of you. If you sit on a valentine, when I think of you, my bowels are moved. But the reason why is lev, the Hebrew means inside and here. But God is saying, I have to discipline you. And every parent knows when you have to discipline your kid, it tears you up. My dad used to tell me back when corporal punishment was allowed spanking, he says, you know, this hurts me more than you. I said, yeah, but not in the same place, I'll tell you that. I had a friend who said that his father sent him, he said, if you don't eat food, you're going to go to that attic. This is a lot of... And you're not going to have dinner and to wait and do your homework. And the kid said, no. And so he said, go. And the father came up after the kid was sitting there in this attic, not eating. And the father brought up a book and he sat with him. He was disciplining his son. But he said, but I'm going to be with you in this. That's what God is saying. I'm disciplining you. I'm not leaving you. I'm not just venting rage at you. But I'm going to be with you in this. And then he has this beautiful statement of this idea of that God is multiple fulfillingness. And the place is not the promised land. It's pagan land. It's not that God is bringing all of Israel back in which Acts realizes. It's even you and I that we are in the middle of this pagan city of Los Angeles. God doesn't want us to suck in here like Fortress Bel Air and avoid that city. That's not how he's going to rebuild the tabernacle of David. He does it by the church going into the heart of the most busted, warped, twisted places and being immunized, not isolated, so that we can interact. And I find the more I interact with the world, and if I have my small group, the cleaner I get. I was speaking in Africa last time, and they had a great expression in the Congo. One of them said, when the right hand washes the left, it washes itself. And what's interesting, when you wash your hands and you do that together, when you interact in life together. And if you're not in one of these small groups, I want to tell you, I almost guarantee you, in three to five years, you won't be walking with Christ. You won't be. You may have the doctrine card club. You believe certain things and can tell me the Apostles' Creed, but you won't be walking with Christ. It's too tough out there on your own. But when God takes us into a busted city like this, into the very heart, when we have these small groups to come alongside, because we were made to be in relationships, then he releases that. Well, it's interesting in my life, desires, how they change. Do you want right now what you wanted 10 years ago? Do you want it more or do you want it less? Does it change? You know, a lot of desires, you create your own tastes. I've told you before, when you first tasted coffee, you thought it was kerosene. Remember that? And now you know it's a gift of God, you know. <laughs> well, you created a it takes for that. Like they said, when you're 25, you walk into a room of strangers, you always think, I hope these people like me. When you're 55 and you walk into a room of strangers, I always think, I hope I like these people. <laughs> That's weird. Things just change in that sense. And, but have you noticed in that heart of heart, in that deep part of your recesses, of where you really live? That's why the 37th Psalm, and if you've gone to any vacation Bible school as a little child or any time, you learn it. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight, and it's an interesting word. Anag, which means we get the word delicate from that, and feminine. It's a sense of delight yourself, or to celebrate the Lord, and he will give you the mishpahalah. The petitions is really the word of your heart. What is your heart asking of you right now? And why do we go for the things we go for? That is the question of life. Napoleon said, all men seek happiness. What makes one man march off to war compels the other to stay behind at home. One guy is going off to war, Napoleon said, for fame and fortune. Another guy wants to stay back behind with his family. But they both want this thing called Happiness. In different ways. And our desires of our heart, our hungers. The Greek in the New Testament talks about thunamos. That those desires sometimes get attached to the wrong things. When I think of, and I just find human beings fascinating. It's the funny thing about the Bible. We think that God is a mystery. No one can know God, but we understand ourselves. The Bible thinks the opposite. Well, God can be known. We're the wacky mystery. Why do we do what we do? This old nature that's inside. Think of Whitney Houston. What a talent. Why couldn't she get off the drugs? Why do people do what they do in the whole addiction? Well, there's a lot of levels to that. Spiritually, Jesus said, whoever sins becomes a slave of sin. The slave does not continue in the house forever, but the sun does. So if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. Meaning what? That the rebellion of where you say, no, God, I'm going to do this. If he says, Mark, I want you to not get too close to that edge because you're going to fall. I go, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Well, when I slip and gravity takes over, my falling is not the sin. That's the slavery of what the idiocy I did in front. And very often in our life, we say no to God, and we just become sucked away this toxic river called life, and we can't get ourselves out of the river. There's a, so many studies on this. In the 90s, uh, this inability of people to postpone gratification. Have you uh, seen the test that they did with these little three- and four-year-olds with the marshmallow? It's pretty famous. I'm sorry, we need to show you sometime. They bring these little kids, and... Uh, the tester comes in and sits down a little four year old and puts one marshmallow in there and says if you don't eat this marshmallow when I come back in the room I'll give you two more and they leave the room and you watch these little kids watching this marshmallow one little girl she looks at it and she covers her eyes she can't watch it <laughs> another guy takes it and he takes a lick and then he throws it against the wall <laughs> half the kids just poop, pop it in their mouth like why not kind of walk out of the room But there's a big question, why do people prefer an immediate reward of lesser value to a later reward of greater value? The ability to postpone gratification. Well physiologically dopamine is one thing. When you're addicted and you know if you don't put the booze down or get off the coke, if you don't turn the pornography off, if you don't whatever the addiction to sports or the addiction to fame, if you don't get a handle on this thing, it's gonna eat your lunch. But at the moment you pump out dopamine, your body kind of goes, go for it. Right now, satisfy, satisfy. This is called discipline, disciple, where your higher brain centers run by your spirit when you have the Holy Spirit in your life can say, no, Moses, the writer of Hebrews said, forsook the wealth of Egypt For he considered abuse suffered for the Christ greater than all the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. He flat out says, I can enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And sin is pleasurable at the moment. I tell people, if you don't think drugs are fun, you don't know how to do drugs. And that's the downside of them. Is there this momentary high and then it just leaves you dead. Adultery can be fun at the moment. And it destroys your life. And why do we do that? Amos says, because we're under this fallen order. And the only way out is to let the Lord himself come and to partake into our life. And he does this through community. Success, therefore, when Amos says, isn't that a weird passage? That the reaper will overtake the sower. That's so beautiful. That the plants are growing so fast, they're reaping. As soon as you throw them down, they grow up. How could fulfillment... Overtake desire. And the answer is faith. Success, according to the Bible, is the realization in your heart that God is at work. The moment you get that, well, you just know it's a process. Once you've set your fanny on that train of faith, you know it's going to get to the destination. And this is not, I wish I will, I wish I might, I wish upon this star tonight, or I hope it turns out. This is knowing that the God of the universe who is involved in this, and the moment you have that kind of release, that faith, you get an advanced withdrawal, like you already have the Super Bowl ring when you're not even playing. I have a friend of mine, uh, who, uh, won a, a lotto. It wasn't a lot of money, but it wasn't a lot to me, and he was for sure he's gonna, he hated his job. And the moment he won the lotto, he didn't quit. Cause he didn't need his job anymore, and he could just go to work any way that he wanted. I had somebody here a couple of years ago ask you if I would pray for them to win the lotto. I said, only if the church gets 10% and I get 10%. They walked out. I don't know what that means about that. But But I said, a pastor friend in Houston, he was going to retire this June. And I asked him, I said, Dave, are you going to retire? He said, no. Because he just figured out with his pension, they can start drawing stuff. He's having so much fun, this church was just tearing him up. But now that he doesn't have to be there, he's liking it. (laughs) Stress is our relationship to the event, not the event. The moment you let go of it. You can get this advanced withdrawal by saying, Lord, I give this to you right now. And he gives you these dreams that nobody else knows. Have you noticed that in your life? Dream with a capital D, as developmental psychology says, what makes life all about. When you try to explain it to others, they don't get it. But maybe there's a portion of scripture or there's a scene in a movie or you read something in a novel or you hear a phrase that is just coined right in a song and you go, that's it. And you try to explain it to others and they look at you with that glazed look like you've got right now. <laughs> because you are unique. And as Lewis said, a key is a funny looking thing if you've never seen a lock. You weren't made for here. And those weird little idiosyncrasies on you someday is going to perfectly open it. And you'll go, of course. And in these desires, as Amos says, The first thing you need to do is you're made for me. Come to me, says the Lord. And then wherever the place is, I will show you to be there. And it's about me helping you to help yourself. Jesus, in that beautiful passage, which we're reading of feeding the 5,000, all gospel writers have that. Of course, he makes the people sit down. He says, have you any bread? And Philip says, 300 denarii, half a year's wages wouldn't feed all these people. And Andrew says, there's a kid here with a Big Mac and two fries, five loaves and two fish. Where are they? And Jesus says, make him sit down. And it's interesting. I think in the Gospel of Mark, the miracle takes place as Jesus divides it. Adenomai is the, the Greek word when he takes it and he breaks the loaves and divides it. I don't think the fish grow in the basket or the bread. And there's something about in the breaking that God multiplies. And in your life and mine, you've got to give him something, even when he breaks it. God ex nihilo one time spoke and the Big Bang took place. We're going to have in about a month a panel discussion here with uh, Biologos on origins. And uh, Dr. Rich Powell, president of Fuller Seminary, and Rabbi Mark Diamond, who is over 304 rabbis here in Los Angeles, head rabbi, we're going to talk about evolution and what does Scripture tell us about, and particularly the science we have here. But it's in the sense that... Time and space are different because God hypers the time. The reaper will overtake the sower. But you've got to give something to God. You don't just say, okay, Lord, put it here in my lap. You've got to start moving. You've got to invest in something. That's why investing in a few lives, God can use that. But as they go out, then they get into a boat because they knew they had their belly fed. Jesus was gone. They were about to make him... King by force, Messiah, and he wasn't coming for a political cause. And when they rode three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the water. Now, they were terrified of the storm, but something scared them more than the storm. Something walking toward him, and Jesus said, it's I. Stop being afraid. And they were glad, and Jesus got into the boat, and immediately, it's at its other place. Moral, you got to get Jesus in the boat. And you get Jesus in the boat, and you're there then. What happens after that is just the fruit and the fruition and the consequences of being in with the Lord there. They were terrified but God, through his son, got them there. I've told this before. I always think of when I was in a seminary... Uh, attending Fuller back in 1978 when the Earth's crust was cooling. And I remember as we were going through some of these passages, there was a young guy there and he was just got married and he was going through a tough time. And our professor, we were studying one of our gospel surveys and, and uh, in the chapel. Uh, the professor said about this, that the boat won't sink and the storm won't last forever. And he didn't have enough money, he was trying, trying to find enough money to do that. And he finally, through other little jobs, he got through seminary and they were married. And they kept trying to have kids and they, and they wrote to this professor and he said, you know, why won't God grant us a child? We so want a child. And, and he wrote back and he said, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you your, your heart's desires. And your boat won't sink and the storm will last forever. And sure enough, after a couple years, she got pregnant and they delivered a beautiful little boy. And within seven months, this boy came down with a horrible disease. And he wrote to this professor and said, why would God do this? This is what we wanted more. We're trying to serve him. We're working so hard. And the professor wrote back and said, that God is a God of healing. But your boat won't sink and the storm will not last forever. And the child died. And they wrote to this professor, and they said that the Lord gave, and we thank him. The Lord took away, and we trust him. But we just want you to know that this boat won't sink, and this storm won't last forever. It's when you know, even when people you thought would always be there in your life, friends or jobs, even when you always thought you would have your health, even when all the little things that we so take for granted, we're so afraid and worried about our desires. We're afraid our desires that if we try for them that we'll be so brokenhearted, so we quit trying. My Buddhist and Hindu friends, they believe that desire is the problem. The less desire you have, the less pained you are. This is the exact opposite. Jesus said, if you are hungry, come to me and eat. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. And a river of water will come welling up from within you. And do you see that someday we're going to stand before the Lord? And I tell you, on that day, you know, if one angel appeared right here, right now, we'd all be on the floor sucking slate. You know that. And they broke into this time-space continuum. Can you imagine innumerable angels created for the specific purpose of praising God and being gathered there and watching them as the young prince of the universe comes walking as you were there and as... They bow and spread apart and he comes rocking right up to you. And he puts those nail scarred hands around you and you smell his hair and feel his heartbeat against you. And says, enter into the joy of the Lord. And we will all be doing, why was I worried? That's the whole point. Do you see that God has you made for Him, and made for a place? And it's not weird that you can't find the perfect place here. It's not weird that you can find the perfect place. The West Side isn't heaven, and I can tell you, I can, the Valley's not heaven. I live there. But your place was made not pie in the sky by and by, but to be walking the Lord. Do you see that you're a creator, and you were made to connect with others? And you see, above all, that the Lord wants us to receive what we can't on our own. We can't chin ourselves up, but just say, Lord, give me this new life. Start walking, and he'll do it. And on that day, says the Lord, I will restore the fortunes of my people. I'll bet you he does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us, and thank you for giving us this message of your prophet Amos. Thank you, God, even as he was not a professional, just an amateur, and you yanked him out of his comfort zone to be obedient, how you used him, Lord. And, Father, we're fearful people. You know that we're knuckleheads and we're just clay and we have so many issues and we're all neurotic, God. But you love us with this undying love. And I pray, Lord, you would whisper to us of your dreams and help us to love those that are around us and to love you. And thank you, God, that we know that the future is secure because you're already there. Lord, as we come now with our tithes and our offerings, what a chance to tell you that we trust you and love you. People, Lord, need the good food and the medicine and the news of Christ that this will allow. Bless the gift and the giver alike. For the glory of the Son of God, we pray. Amen.